Greetings and salutations in the name of our Lord. I hope you're having a wonderful, wonderful morning. Um, I have just been having so much fun with these devotions. What's really neat to me is I don't know why I never thought of this before and why I never considered this before. But I believe I showed a map of the area that all the New Testament worked in. Let me pull it up here real quick. All right, let me just do a fancy erase job here. Get there we go. All right. The Christianity, when it left Jerusalem, and where was Jerusalem? Jerusalem was, let me find that is, down here. Here we go, right there. It made its way up into uh, Western Asia, I guess you call it. Asia Minor is the other name for it. Uh, it made its way up to here. And Paul did a lot of evangelization through here and through here. And that was pretty much the seat of Christianity in the first century. Uh, Christians started moving out of I'm sorry, the Christian church started moving out of Jerusalem. When it began, it was primarily a Jewish movement, like we've mentioned before. And uh, it made sense that the majority of adherents to this new faith would be Jewish. And then, if you remember Peter's story in the book of Acts, he had a vision and where God showed him that Gentiles were to be allowed in. And Gentiles started being actively evangelized. And as a result of all of this, Peter and Paul, and then, of course, Paul comes along. We don't understand him. So we have two really major forces of nature, leadership-wise, in this early church. You had Paul and you had Peter. Paul was a Pharisee. And he was a uh, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, the most, I guess, the most formally trained Jewish leader that the church had at the time. Uh, and he was probably one of the most brilliant minds of his day, of any day, actually. And you would expect, if you were sitting on a job placement board and Peter and, and Paul came to you, you'd say, uh, Peter, you had the vision about the Gentiles. Why don't you go preach to the Gentiles? And Paul, you're the most qualified to speak to any of the Jewish objections that come up. Why don't you go be the apostle to the Jews? And <laughs> it turned out to be exactly opposite. Peter's focus was on the Jewish contingency. And Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles. But they all worked together, all these apostles, and they all worked in this area that I've got lined out here. So there must have been more than a few interactions between all these apostles. And it wasn't just Peter and, and Paul. There was James, there was John, there was Andrew, there was Philip. Most of them were doing their work in this area in this first century. Now, before we get into discussing 1 Peter, let's try to see if we can put a timeline to it. I got a timeline right, right here. 
in AD 33, uh, we have Jesus' death and resurrection. 54 AD, Nero begins ruling Rome. 60 AD, Rome begins its final campaign against Jerusalem. It's had enough, and it's going to destroy Israel and Jerusalem in the temple. Uh, Nero dies in 68 AD, and Rome finally destroys the temple in 70 AD. Now, 1 Peter was written sometime between where Rome began its campaign against Jerusalem and the death of Nero because Nero was responsible for killing Paul and Peter. When the siege of Jerusalem began in AD 60, there was an outflow of Jewish citizenry to get away from the army, to get away from the siege. And they were dispersed. Now, all this, I did all this because I really wanted to find out if I could nail down when Peter wrote his letter. And it's, everything I've been able to find says that he wrote it right around between eighty sixty 60 and 64. Uh, because we know that he died sometime before 68 because that's when Nero died and Nero killed Peter. So right now we're gonna we're just gonna put the writing of this letter between AD 60 and 64. So what was happening? Jerusalem was being besieged. Jerusalem was being attacked by Rome. Its autonomy was pretty much over. Uh, Roman had enough, and the Jewish faith was on its way to becoming uh, persona non grata to Rome and. They were going to destroy the temple. And by this time, Christianity had pretty much worn out its welcome as a sect of the of Judaism. And there was less and less protection afforded Christianity. Christianity was now uh, beginning to be seen as its own religion, and which made life difficult for Christians in this day because now the government was actively campaigning against them, especially in Rome. Uh, Nero, it was said, would uh, he would put Christians, capture Christians and tie them up in animal skins and have dogs and lions uh, tear them apart. He would put Christians on poles in his gardens, soak them in oil and light them on fire so they could light his gardens at night. He was an incredibly cruel and vicious, vicious man. So that's kind of the background where Peter's starting to write this. The Rome has invaded Jerusalem. They've left Jerusalem and they're scattering. And of course, they're going to be scattering north into this, uh, this area that I mentioned here. They're going to be heading this direction to get away from what's happening in Jerusalem. So in Israel, in effect, is getting ready to be destroyed once again. That's the background to Peter's uh, first letter. So let's take a look at it. Put Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, 
Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So he's writing this to somebody he's calling God's elect. Now that was a title reserved pretty much for Israel. Israel viewed themselves as God's elect. So it's it's pretty striking that Peter's using that label for all the believers, which includes Jews and Gentiles. But he might have in mind the fact that his Jewish compatriots have left Jerusalem. And so maybe that's who he's talking to here when he says to the exiles. So maybe he's talking primarily to the Jewish believers. And this is a this is a uh, a title that they would immediately identify with. Peter's ministry was to the Jewish people. And so elect you know the the elect would I would would quickly line up with a, what a Jewish believer would feel about themselves that they are God's elect and Jewish believers did that. Now he said he adds to it he says, you're chosen according to the foreknowledge, foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Predetermination and foreknowledge was not a foreign concept uh, to Jewish people. They believed that they had been chosen by God. That had There is no problems associated with calling them that. Nowadays, we have big deal debates concerning predestination and and uh, foreknowledge of God. Uh, but to the Jewish believers that day, there's no big deal. They understand, they understood that they were chosen by God. And Peter, by mixing in this blessing and linking it to Jesus Christ, kind of tightens down that foreknowledge and says, you know, this is what you were chosen for, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. This is what being elect means to you. And he goes on. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. All right, let's just stop right there. He's encouraging them because if they have if they're part of the diaspora, if they're part of the Jewish people that have left Israel due to Rome's active military campaign, they, they're scattered. Um, they've lost everything. Many of these families lost everything. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Fiddler on the Roof. It's about a Jewish community in Russia, I believe. Uh, and the Russian government slams down on this Jewish community and takes everything from them, kicks them out. Lands that they've owned for generations, farms, businesses, takes it all. And these people, it's a story about these people in the end leaving and scattering, taking only what they could carry in a, in a, uh, in a wagon or on their backs. 
that's kind of what's going on here at this period of time. So when Peter's, he's telling him, you know, you've got a living hope and you have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And he's reminding them that what they're going to is far greater than what they've come from. The world is caving in on the Christians at this time. It's just beginning. It's caving in. Many are losing everything. And he's reminding them, the inheritance you have, which is kept in heaven for you, is so much greater than what you've left behind. It's shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, these trials have come, so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The purpose of trials and yes, there is a purpose in trials. And some of these trials come straight from the hand of God. Now, Peter isn't assigning blame here. But he's telling him, look, these trials will try your faith. These trials will prove the genuineness of your faith. You don't know what a person's made of until they're under stress. There is a story told years ago. Christian man was telling it. Uh, he was in an airplane, a jet that crashed, I think in Jamaica or one of those places in the Caribbean. And it literally split in two. And there was a, uh, there was panic. Nobody knew what was going on. There was, there was gas that had been sprayed everywhere and things were bursting into flame. And the thing that he noticed that he thought was so interesting was that prior to this happening, they're all having pleasant conversation. But the minute that death is at the door, he said, this man over here started cursing God at the top of his voice. The anger and the vitriol and the rage in him was overwhelming. This woman over here cowered in fear and couldn't even speak. What was interesting to him was that as a believer, his reaction was to stand up and proclaim Jesus to those on the plane. He just stood up and started telling them, there is a hope for us. We are not dead. God can save. Things of that nature. He said that was just instinctive. He just started doing it. And he said, it, he the more he thought about it, the more he realized that what's in you comes out of you when you're faced with a trial, tribulation. And that's kind of what Peter's saying here. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, this is important. This really applies to you and I. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. 
I do, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I am. Because you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now it's interesting, in the Greek language, let's see if I can, let's see if I can make this work here. In the Greek language, many times, it's it's a three-dimensional language. In other words, it's got, it, it just covers so much more territory. We say saved, but in the Greek language, I'm drawing this line here. Many times the verbs used refer to an action that took place at some time in the past, continuing through the present, still being work, still working, looking forward to a time in the future when it will all be completed. We have to use three words to describe this version of the word saved. We talk about justified. That's what happened in the past. For instance, you heard my testimony in yesterday's episode about how on a week before Easter 1975, I bowed my knee to Christ. I was justified. And then the effects of that event carry through the present. We call it sanctification. Looking at the time in the future when this action will be complete, we call that glorified. Glory, have I got enough word? Room? Glorified. Yeah, there we go. Just enough. So we could say, I could say, I was justified so that I could go through sanctification so that one day I might be glorified. We could say, I was saved so that I might go through the process of being saved so that one day I might be saved. That's kind of the picture here. So when when Peter when Peter is saying you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith the salvation of your souls he's talking about an ongoing salvation process and he's hinting at it here he's saying there's trials it's refining you like gold um if I remember correctly, when you're refining gold, you apply a great deal of heat to it and it melts, of course, and then the impurities rise to the top and they're scraped off and they're scraped off and they're scraped off. And gold is pure when the smelter, the gold maker, whatever, the artisan, can look into the gold and see his reflection. There's no impurities when he can see his reflection. You might apply that to us. Trials that we go through purify us with the end result being that God's image is reflected in you. When I was, uh, I'll close with this, about back in 2001, I was laid off from a very, very lucrative engineering job. Um, 
it was pretty traumatic, but I saved up a bunch of money and I withdrew all my money and I started a video production company. I'd always wanted to do video production and this was my chance. Within six months, every dollar I had put into this venture was gone and I had to declare bankruptcy. It was the most shameful. I lost the company. I lost everything. It was, it was the most shameful experience and painful experience that I've ever gone through in my life. Um, God changed the direction of my life in a huge way through that trial. And I'm doing what I'm doing today. I'm teaching full-time music. I mean, this is what I'm meant to do. So I can look at that trial and see, I can see why that happened. First of all, an ancillary result is that I'm doing what I'm doing now today and that's what I'm supposed to be doing. God used it to change the direction of my life. But more to the point, like what this is talking about, what trials do in purifying gold, um, after about a year, year and a half, uh, we'd sold our house. I got out from under the bankruptcy. Uh, we were well on our way to doing what we're doing here today. God was prospering. God was doing great things. But I would still wake up every morning feeling ashamed for what I had done. Nearly putting my wife and I on the street. Nearly being homeless. I mean, it, it, was, that, it was that dire a circumstance. And I remember at, talking to God about it one day. He says, God, when am I going to stop feeling all this shame? about what I did. I've asked you for forgiveness, you've forgiven. You've blessed, you've helped me recover, you've put me on the path to what I'm supposed to be doing. But when will I stop feeling ashamed? And I felt God tell me, I didn't hear his voice, but I might have, can't remember. But I felt God tell me and remind me about my father. Now, at the, all this time that I was going through this, my father was dying. My father died about the same time I lost my job. And he says, your father didn't just die last January. He, he'd had a heart attack. He said he was dying for five or six years before that. He'd had several small strokes, um, heart attack. Uh, he had diabetes. He had a host of things going on. He said, your father was dying for five or six years before he finally died. Death is rarely instantaneous and it's rarely painless. You are dying to the sin of foolishness with money. But I guarantee you, when I'm done with you, you're going to look at money the same way I do. And God has kept his word. He's refined me. He not only used that trial to redirect my life, but he used it to refine an area in my life that needed refining because I was very stupid with money. Um, and God has been so good since then. He's been faithful to his word. So you can see what's happening here. Peter is writing to a group of people, many of whom have had to leave Jerusalem. The Roman Empire is coming down with heavy hands on Jerusalem. They besieged Jerusalem for eight years, I think. 
Uh, let's see. Let's go back to that timeline. Let me get this right here. It began in uh, 60, and it was done in 60 and 70, AD 70. And Nero died in 68 before the Roman army finished what it was out to do, set out to do. Um, so many of these people had left everything, lost everything, and were in a new place, much like, much like in that uh, musical, The uh, Fiddler on the Roof. So, Peter's message is to them. And it's like the my little logo up there at the top. First Peter, hope in a world that's not our home. These were displaced people. Their home was no longer their home. And that's kind of like you and me, isn't it? I've said it before. This world is not our home. And eventually, every believer will get hit in the face with the animosity that the world holds. And there may very well come a time in this generation when our country that we live in now will actively pursue persecution of those who call themselves Christians. So, hope for a world that's not our home. First Peter. And the other thing is, you know, it's all the... I'm, I'm just beginning to realize how much closer knit so many of these letters are because they're addressing the same group of people in the same geographical area. And Peter, Peter knows Paul. Paul knows Peter. They all know each other. John, James, Oliver. And so all of these apostles, many of them were working this area together. So it's kind of fascinating to me. And I'm, oh, I'm looking forward so much to seeing what else First Peter has to say. So with that, I think I'll just sign off. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head on out and get some breakfast because, hey, I'm old, it's early, I'm hungry. This is Mr. G. I'm out of here. Bye-bye.